0: For an opening passage of Scripture, please turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. I would like to make this the second sermon in a series of reminders in godliness. And I would like to review five very simple inputs that will make or break you as a victorious, fruit-bearing Christian. I have taught this to your children. They know that if I hold up my hand with my five fingers spread, what I am referring to. In 2nd Peter chapter 1, in verses 5 through 11, which are very precious to us about making our calling and election sure, the apostle Peter said in the eighth verse, That if these things be in us and abound, they make us that we shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, he writes, but if we lack these things, we're blind and cannot see afar off and have forgotten that we were purged from our old sins. And so he takes up in verses 12 through 15 to say that he was not going to be negligent to put those believers always in remembrance of these things, though they already knew them, though they were already established in that truth. He said it was meat, which is to be appropriate or fit, verse 13, as long as he was alive, that he would stir them up by putting them in remembrance. Verse 14, he knew that he was going to die shortly, and he was hoping that, and endeavoring that after his departure they would be able to have those things always in remembrance. So he gave himself to some simple reminders at times, because when we look at Second Peter chapter 1, there's nothing very deep or complicated there, but there are eight fruits, eight aspects of living a godly life that are listed there. And he said he was not going to neglect reminding them of those eight things, and without those eight things, there isn't any assurance of eternal life. But with them, there's a fruitfulness that is pleasing to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is my goal. Some simple reminders in godliness. Turn back with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. In order for us to be better Christians, in order for us to be ready for the Lord coming, we don't need more complicated things. We need to be doing more diligently the simple things that we already know. And so these messages are ma- are very simple. And while much could be said, much will not be said. Just enough for you to have something to take home and do better today and tomorrow by His grace. This is the Apostle Paul describing his ministry in the last two verses of chapter 1. Colossians 1.28 Whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. He uses the plural for Timotheus and other ministers of the gospel along with himself in the 28th verse and the 29th verse. He makes it his very personal labor and endeavor. My goal is to save you from having a average, fruitless, pitiful life as a Christian, and to lead you and help you have a victorious life, which we all should have. Jesus Christ has given us all the tools and the power, and the Holy Spirit enables us and convicts, if we don't grieve and quench Him, beyond our hearing. If your goals for yourself and your children are spiritual or Christian mediocrity, then I don't have much for you today. But if you and your goals for yourself and your goals for your children are truly to be spiritually minded, fruit-bearing Christians, I have something simple for you. For the sake of all ages that are here, and to help you remember the points I've simplified These inputs for success, for Christian success, down to just a few basic points. Of course, there's more inputs. But I've sought to simplify things by focusing on a few big ones, and they're big ones over which each of you have control, even if you are a child living at home under your parents. Of course, each of the inputs could be expanded into its own sermon, but that wouldn't be my goal, and it isn't my goal. My goal is for you to take something home, represented by five, that you can remember, I hope today and tomorrow, to do. Not a week goes by in my life that I do not answer someone in spiritual decline or trouble with this very issue of what I'm going to give you. Not a week. Either within our church, outside our church, through the internet, wherever, every week I deal with this. At least once. And I want to share it with you. With the high birth rate in our church, parents need to firmly grasp these five points. Because what are you bringing children into this world unless you're going to teach them these five things? You can have the sweet privilege of establishing these five matters as important habits in the lives of your children for their future success. As measured by the Bible and in the sight of the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you'll remember that God gave you your children with blank slates. And if you're filling those blank slates with things of the world and things against the five inputs I'm about to give you, then you are destroying your children as ever being living meaningful, valuable, fruit-bearing, prosperous lives in the sight of God. What inputs will you allow? What inputs are you allowing to your children? To the degree you cheat... On any one of these five inputs that I give you is the degree that you will fail as a true Christian. You cannot cheat on these and succeed. They're contrary to true holiness if you compromise or cheat. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and see there what it takes to be a world-class athlete. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. First of all, of course, it takes a great gift. That is a gift by a creator bestowed upon a man to run faster, leap higher, or throw farther than anyone else. But he arrives at that level of success by applying himself in a matter called temperance, which is self-discipline. I'm going to start at verse 24, where the apostle is making a comparison to athletes. He mentions two sports, which are running and boxing. And then he describes himself relative to this. And his point is unlike our generation which loves to hand out trophies for effort and trophies for participation. There's only one trophy and it goes to first place because second place is losing. Verse 24. Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize. Don't you know that? Know ye not? So run that ye may obtain. We ought to run with the idea that our Christian race only has one winner, which means we don't want to settle for, well, I was in the crowd at the finish line. We want to be in front of the crowd at the finish line. The Apostle Paul wanted to break the tape himself. He wasn't looking for Barnabas or Timothy to get to the tape first, and as long as he was in the crowd at the finish feeling good about himself. Know ye not. Don't we understand this basic aspect of being a winner? Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize. So run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery to be a world-class athlete is what's under consideration, is temperate in all things. Temperate's meaning self-discipline, self-denial, or moderation in diet, in sleep, in exercise, in all their activities in order to be the greatest that they can be. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown or an Olympic medal, but we run our race For an incorruptible crown, and that's the praise and honor of the Lord Jesus Christ at his appearing. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air. But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Paul could be a castaway, and if Paul could be a castaway or a worthless Christian, we can be castaways or worthless Christians. And so in order to avoid that, we keep under our body, we rule our body and tell it what we will allow it to do and what we will not allow it to do in a way of temperance and self-denial and self-discipline, like a world-class athlete denies himself Pieces 3 through 12 from the pizza buffet in order to be a world-class athlete. And so the apostle uses two sports, running and boxing, and describes athletes in general that only one wins the prize. Now the amount of discipline required to do the five things I'm going to give you is less than world-class athletes put in to getting their prizes. And so we ought to be able to do it. The amount of time required, the sacrifice required, for what I'm about to share with you, is not worth being called taking up your cross. The Lord Jesus Christ was nailed to a cross after having been scourged. And He had a crown of thorns planted on His head. He knew what it meant to take up a cross. And we can read about it, but I don't even like saying that these compare to that. Because that's disgraceful to think that these few little things I'm going to mention to you should be compared to taking up your cross daily. It's been put this way, and I don't necessarily get excited about this metaphor, but since I'm not good at it, let me borrow from another. You have two dogs inside you, the old man and the new man. And whichever dog you feed is going to grow and be bigger and be able to eat the other dog or beat it in a fight. You have an old man and a new man. And if you are allowing inputs to your old man, your old man will become very domineering and very loud, very aggressive, and very successful in your life. But if you will starve your old man and feed your new man, that new man can become very much in control of your life and leads you on to Christ and and successful Christian living. If you feed inputs to your old man, you're going to die. That's living after the flesh. Romans chapter eight. If you feed your new man, which is being spiritually minded, you shall live. I have five things and they're so simple. It sounds ridiculous to mention them from a pulpit. But it's not ridiculous. It's ridiculous if we're not doing these things the way I'm about to describe. And I will finish. Five things. Daily prayer. Daily prayer is an input, one of five inputs, that will make or break you as a Christian. I am not talking about praying before you eat. I am not talking about praying when you need to pass a test. I am not talking about you praying when you're going to the hospital. I am not talking about any kind of prayer like that. That is not what makes successful and victorious Christians. This is not prayer at family devotions. This is not prayer for a carnal need. Though prayer at those times and for those reasons should also be a part of your life. But that's not the prayer I'm describing. The prayer that I'm talking about here is the intimate prayer of communion and fellowship with God about spiritual things. It includes adoring Him and telling Him how much you love Him and why you love Him. It includes the confession of your sins and your sinfulness. It includes your thanksgiving for saving you. It includes your thanksgiving for him enlightening your eyes to see the things of the kingdom of heaven. It is begging him for more righteousness. It is begging him for a holy life. It is begging him for more of the Holy Spirit. It includes the Bible's spiritual request that you can read in John 17, when the Lord Jesus Christ prayed to his Father in heaven, It includes the spiritual requests that the Apostle Paul lists in his epistles for us to pick up on of what really makes a prayer. Ephesians chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 19, and other places where you can find the Apostle giving us the hints and secrets of powerful, intimate prayer to God for spiritual things. Christians often have not because they ask not. Right. And the Bible tells us that. But what I'm talking about right now is asking for spiritual things. Right. I don't want you to be thinking, well, I don't have a better job because I haven't prayed enough for a better job. I don't care whether you ever pray for your job again. Because that's not going to matter when you stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. What's going to matter is how victoriously you lived and how much fruit you bore during your life as a Christian, by His grace. He has saved us for a purpose, and that's to bear fruit. If you have trouble thinking of what to say when you're praying, use the Psalms. Go get into Psalm 42 and get down on your knees, and speak to yourself. O my soul, why art thou cast down? And pray the prayer in that Psalm 42. Or go to Psalm 119, and I don't care if you open it this way and put your finger down and get on your knees and pray that text. If you'll pray it with understanding and the same heart's desire that David had, God will bless you. I am talking about spiritual prayer. Alone, by yourself, with time, not to be hurried. Not while you're driving. Time that you have made to go seek the face of God. The Bible tells us that David and Daniel both prayed three times daily. And that doesn't mean before three meals. The Bible tells us where Daniel prayed. He opened his windows to face the barren ground of Jerusalem where Nebuchadnezzar had leveled the city of his fathers because Solomon had prayed at the dedication of his temple. If my people, when they are captive under your chastening judgment, face this place and pray, hear thou from heaven and deliver them. If you want to know what David, Daniel prayed, then go read Daniel chapter 9, the first 20 verses, and it will tell you how he confessed the sins of his fathers and his own sins and begged for God to have mercy. You say, I don't pray very much like that. That's why I'm here with infant material for all of us to humble ourselves and to add an element of prayer to our lives that we may have neglected. That's all I have to say on prayer. We could say a whole lot more. I could turn you to many passages. I just want you to think about the first of five. What you need every day as a daily input to be a great Christian, and that is spiritual praying. You praying for a spouse or you praying for a job or you praying to pass a test isn't going to do you very much good. Right? I mean, really. We can drive just about anything and you can marry just about anyone in many respects. We're talking about being successful when the Lord Jesus Christ measures you and you give an account of your life and we are all hastening toward that. And a 29-year-old woman I've never met is there. And I shall be there soon. My mother is already there too. Daily Bible reading. This is meditative Bible reading that I'm talking about to meet God, to feed on His fare, and to learn truth for your life. This is not merely to accomplish an annual goal of reading the Bible or to fill in a Bible reading chart. This is through the discipline and goal, though the discipline and goals of such a Bible reading program can be useful to keep you on track reading every day, but that is not my goal, nor, that, nor is that what I'm talking about. Less is usually better in the kind of reading that I'm talking about, so that you can more fully analyze and delight in the words of God and allow Him to speak to you, not because you're rushing so fast over the words that you miss the jewels and the diamonds and the facets that are there in those words by which He can feed you and encourage you and enlighten your eyes. Job valued the words of God's mouth more needful than his necessary food. He tells us in Job chapter 23 and verse 12, We have a simple Bible program which I will mail you and which my Father is giving you questions every day to help you through that one chapter a day that will get you from Genesis to Revelation avoiding the hard parts of the Bible. Do you care enough about God and meeting the high king of heaven and giving an account of your life to read one chapter slowly, meditatively, carefully, seeking to meet God and to have your soul fed by every living, by every word of the living God. Jesus said that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. But you make absolute certain. That you eat three, four, five, eight, ten times a day. You snack between meals. What if you looked at the Word of God the same way, so that not only you had highly nutritious, compact, prepared and planned meals several times a day, but in between you were taking snacks of the Word of God. Right. But I'm not talking about snacks. I'm talking about setting apart some time where you meet God in the pages of Holy Scripture. He doesn't appear in visions to us. We have something better than a vision from heaven. We have his words in writing. He has written to you and he has written from an infinite mind, carefully preserved and inspired through the pens of men to speak to your soul individually as personally as it could ever be done more personally than anyone has ever spoken to you on this world. In the Bible. Daily, meditative reading. And less is better. Don't race through three chapters. I don't care if you were to hang yourself up for 15 minutes on one verse of Psalm 119. Your soul would f- would be better for it. Your soul would be fed. Your prayer should include asking God to open His Word to you and to speak to you while you're reading. David would say, Open thou mine eyes, That I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. Don't give the Lord your leftovers. Wisdom, lady wisdom, would say in Proverbs chapter eight, I love them that seek me early. You know, that can be early in life. So I'm speaking to you children and young people. That can be early in the day before you've got 18 different things going on. Set time apart. For getting into the Word of God a small portion and feasting on it, reading it, rereading it, rereading it, praying it, begging God to show you what those words mean, letting them fill out in their splendor. David said, I have seen an end of all perfection, but thy commandment is exceeding broad. You will never plumb the depths, nor will you reach the width of the Word of God. It has something for you every day in a passage That you may have read 100 or 1,000 times. They write me. Why don't I love the Lord as much as I used to? Why can't I live victoriously? Why can't I get the victory over this particular temptation? Matthew sees many of them. I get them every week. And I'm 55 years old or something like that. It's four. But I know by experience and I know by watching and I know by reading God's word what made the difference between ordinary, fruitless Christians and the great men. I preached to you a series of messages about the heart of David because the heart of David is exposed in the Bible as to what he did that made him exceptional. And I taught you that for you to be like him. Daily, intimate, intimate, Spiritual prayer, daily, meditative, reading the word of God to meet God and to have him speak to you through his word. Three, we're talking about inputs. You put those first two inputs in, your new man is going to explode with growth like he's on steroids. Your new man will explode with growth if you will take the time and set it apart and make it the high point and the primary focus of getting a day started to pray that way and to read God's Word that way, God will bless you. Your new man will grow. Your old man's going to chafe. Your old man's going to be bored. Your old man's going to come up with excuses why you can do it later and why it's not important. He's lying to you. Don't you know your old man only lies? You vent hell through your old man. The thoughts and the feelings that you get from your old man are from the devil himself. Don't you listen to that voice. You're going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to stand there beside you. We're going to give an account of our lives. Whether we have listened to that voice or we listen to this voice that I give you from the word of God and that your conscience should be giving you. But your conscience is going to be seared if you haven't been doing this. You're going to find me overbearing. You're going to find me mystically spiritual in a way that you can't even grasp. But this is simple, basic Christianity. Right. For successful Christians. Friends, number three. The Bible's very plain. Look at Proverbs chapter nine. Let's just see what the Bible says. You know the verse well. Do I, do I need to turn you to 1 Corinthians 15? 33 We're turning to Proverbs chapter 9. But in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, it says, Be not deceived. Don't be deceived. Don't think you can get away with it. Don't think it won't hurt you. Evil communications corrupt good manners. We want the good manners. The good manners are those things that God approves of. The good manners are those things that we can tell the Lord in the day of judgment that we did these things, and we can know that we did the things that please Him. But evil friends will corrupt them. I don't care if they're good Christian people. Good Christian people crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. If you'll allow me the use of good Christian people to describe those under the Old Covenant. That was the most conservative religious denomination of God's religion. That crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. Proverbs chapter 9 and verse 6. 6 Forsake the foolish and live. Amen. Look at chapter 13 and verse 20. He that walketh with wise men shall be wise. Notice the inputs. He that walketh with wise men shall be wise. Because if you make wise men, wise boys, wise girls, wise women, your companions, then you're going to walk with them and they're they're going to rub off on you. They're going to make you wise. They're going to have answers for your questions. They're going to have suggestions for your dilemmas. And they're going to exhort you to do what is right because you're hanging around with wise people. And this is wise as determined by God's Word, not by any other criterion. But it says in the second half of the verse, a companion of fools shall be destroyed. They're going to rub off on you as well. You're going to hang around with those that God hates because God hates fools. He hates foolishness. He hates folly. And so you want to get away from them. The friends make an input to your life. Friends influence you greatly, especially the younger you are. The more your friends influence you. Don't tell me they don't influence you. They do influence you. It's called peer pressure. It molds you. It bends you. It breaks you. It pressures you by your peers because you want to meet with their acceptance. You want to be popular. You don't want to be an outcast. Look at Psalm 1. Look at David. Very very quickly. Psalm 1, verse 1, opens the book of Psalms. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. He is outside of their lifestyle. He is outside of their attitude. He is outside of their actions. Start, the Bible starts off that way, about the life of David. Look at chapter 15 and verse 4. Psalm fifteen four. This is the attitude you ought to have. In whose eyes a vile person is contemned, but he honoreth them that fear the Lord. Notice this great man that is going to make it to heaven, because that's what Psalm 15 is about, that's going to stand in the presence of the Lord. He condemns vile persons. Those people that disobey the word of God, have a filthy mouth or a filthy lifestyle, he condemns them but he honors them that fear the Lord. He sets them up. He exalts them. They're his favorite people. He's a lover of good men. Titus chapter 1 and verse 8. Look at chapter 16. I want you to see the psalmist. The psalmist David. The psalmist David said that his goodness does not extend to the Lord in verse 2. But in verse 3 it says, But to the saints that are in the earth, and to the excellent, in whom is all my delight. David found all of his delight in the excellent that are in the earth. To the saints. Those are sanctified people living a holy life. The only time that you think they're boring is when you're in the flesh, and you're thinking through the flesh. The devil thinks they're boring, the old man thinks they're boring, but the new man doesn't. The new man loves them because they are the excellent in the earth. And they will stand confidently before the Lord Jesus Christ. And they will have declared of them, well done. My good and faithful servant, enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. David said, my goodness extends to them. They are all my delight. These are the friends you must choose. Look at 26. I'm not going to let David go until he gets his point across. Hurry with me. Psalm 26, verse 4. I have not sat with vain persons. Do you ever sit around and hang out? What does the word hang out mean except to be stupid? Go hang yourself instead of hanging out. What do you mean by that? I have not sat with vain persons. Vain persons are profitless, unprofitable, empty, worthless, foolish persons. Neither will I go in with dissemblers. Those are those that deceive or tell lies. I have not, uh, verse 5, I have hated the congregation of evildoers. I've hated it. The gatherings, the crowds, and will not sit with the wicked. I don't want anything to do with them. I hate them. I won't sit with them. And I won't go in with them. I don't have more time. These verses are plain enough. Look at 101. Psalm 101. Psalm 101 and verse 4. David here is promising God of what kind of godly life he is going to live. Verse 4. A froward heart shall depart from me. Any man who's froward. That means to be naughty, wicked, bad. A bad heart shall depart from me. I will not know a wicked person. Whoso privately slandereth his neighbor, him will I cut off. I won't put up with people who backbite and whisper about others. Him that hath an high look and a proud heart, some arrogant or conceited person, will not I suffer. Mine eyes shall be upon the faithful of the land, that they may dwell with me. He that walketh in a perfect way, he shall serve me. I'm looking for perfect people to make my friends. You say, well, there aren't any. Yes, there are. Compared to you, there sure are. Find yourself some perfect friends. He that worketh deceit shall not dwell within my house. He that telleth lies shall not tarry in my sight. I will early destroy all the wicked of the land, that I may cut off all wicked doers from the city of the Lord. Look at Psalm 119. Psalm 119 and verse 63. 119, 63, This is the third input of five. The third input is the friends that you choose. The companions that you have. Those that you hang around. Those that you talk to. Those that you so-called bear your soul to. Oh, and they bear their soul to you. What kind of people are you picking? There's only a few in the earth. And they're called saints and they're called the excellent. And they love righteousness and holiness. They're the only ones you should pick. Verse 63, I am a companion of all them that fear thee. Though That should be your companion right there. And of them that keep thy precepts. Psalm 119, verse 63. Jump over just a little ways to verse 79. Let those that fear thee turn unto me. And those that have known thy testimonies. You want Bible believing, Christ loving people to be your friends. And if they don't fear God and love the Bible and love Jesus Christ, they're not good enough to be your friends. They're going to pull you down. They're going to destroy you. Music. Music's a powerful medium of influence and it is not neutral in its spiritual effects. Right. You know, people who love the world's music love to say that music is neutral. Well, then why is it that only a certain kind of people with a certain level of wickedness listen to each kind of music? Would you just explain that for me? Sure. Disciplined people with character don't listen to rap. Oh, when so much more could be said. All you have to do is look at their fruits. By their fruits, ye shall know them. What is the lifestyle and the character of those that perform it, those that write it, and those that buy it and listen to it? You don't need me to give you some long explanation of the Bible since the Lord has left us without verses specifically condemning some of the garbage that we've invented in the last 100 years in this country. But there is something in this country, and that is the mechanical devices that can bring music to your ears 24 hours a day at any level of volume that you so need or require, which never existed in the past. But music is a powerful medium. It is called the language of the soul. And you have a soul that has been bought out of this world by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you are His and you are not your own. And the Holy Spirit of God dwells in you. And your body is called the temple of the Holy Ghost. And so like I have said before the music that you ought to let in through the two holes that He prepared in the sides of your head into His temple had better be temple music. We are talking about being a successful, victorious Christian. If you are letting the world's music in through these two audio holes that God put in the sides of your head, where the noise reaches the Holy Spirit that is dwelling within your body, you are corrupting yourself in front of the Holy Spirit. You are grieving and quenching the Holy Spirit, and you will never amount to a victorious, fruit-bearing, strong, zealous Christian. It should be temple music. I know I've said this before, so I hear the question. Do you mean the only music I should be listening to is godly music that glorifies Christ? Why are you asking the question, you pagan pervert? What in the world is going wrong between you and me that you would even ask such a question like that? I thought that the Bible said that everything we do, whether we eat or drink or whatsoever we do, we should do all to the glory of God. The glory of God. Godly music. You know what happened when King Saul was afflicted by an evil spirit from the Lord? They all knew more about music than you do. They said we need to find a man that can play cunning on the harp. And God may deliver you from this evil spirit. And he said, go ahead and find him. And they found one. His name was David. I wonder what kind of lyrics he sang. Oh, I think we have 150 of them, short a few written by Asaph. And he played, and Saul would be relieved. I can get you devil-possessed, and I can get me devil-possessed with the wrong kind of music. And all you have to do is look at their concerts and see what they do at those concerts and see what they say in their music. You don't need a lesson from me on music. Is it God glorifying, Christ honoring, temperance teaching Christian music? If music's the language of the soul, what kind of language do you want to be speaking to your soul? The Bible tells you what you're supposed to sing when you're married. What is the answer? In James chapter five and verse thirteen, what is the answer when you're married? What are you supposed to be singing? Psalms. You say, well, that's kind of restrictive. Wouldn't it be wonderful to live in a nation like Israel, where you'd have had to walk ten miles and bring some money in order to get to hear any other kind of music but psalms? Right. And now you've got all these little gadgets in your purse, in your pockets under your belt, in your cell phone. You can listen to any crap that you want to, any time of day, at any volume you want it. And I know the world's a better place for it, isn't it? I've watched it corrupt, and I have felt it corrupt, because it corrupted me. And I have a wonderful father. But I wish he'd have used his sledgehammer a little bit more. When I was 14 in breaking devices and body parts. But thanks be to God. One of the ways to befriend the world and to be the enemy of God is to listen to its music. Its music is against the Lord Jesus Christ. Its music is against righteousness. Its music is against wisdom. Its music is against a creator. I don't care if you're listening to country western and trying to call that godly. All they know in country western music is adultery, divorce, and drunkenness. In their best music. Again, measure it by the performing artists and the people that buy it and listen to it. Measure it by its lyrics compared to the word of God. That's four. Number five, your entertainment. Hollywood is the devil's pulpit. There is religion being preached in every single production that comes out of Hollywood. It actually can become a nice, in certain respects, it can actually become a nice little exercise in spiritual discernment to figure out which religion they're preaching. Everything that comes out of Hollywood is preaching a religion. It is the most powerful medium the world has ever seen is a moving picture with audio. And they can make that moving picture with technical advances that we've had in the last 40 years. They can make that picture so visually attractive by retakes and retakes, makeup and lighting, and then have a soundtrack attached to it where it becomes so potent and so powerful, and it's conveying to you the religious sermon that is being preached by the devil that is behind Hollywood. Those are not innocent people out there. Read about their lifestyles. Read about what they think of Bible Christianity. They despise us. But there is that message coming through everything. You can tell me all you want about Anne of Green Gables. And like I've said before, so there isn't, there may not be overt, direct, obvious evil in something called Anne of Green Gables but it's a faithless approach to living, which is wickedness. Life is to serve the Lord. He gave us our lives. We owe Him everything. The Lord hath made all things for Himself, yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. There isn't a faithless approach. If you watch enough what I'm going to call innocent and neutral television for the moment that doesn't have overt wickedness in it, It's faithless approach to living, and it will leave you rather faithless. You will not be a faith-driven person walking by faith, not by sight. You will become a sight-driven person, and you will not be pleasing the Lord Jesus Christ. You will not be adding to your faith virtue because you won't even really have faith. You'll just come into this church and sit. Or come into this church and stand in this pulpit like me. Even if you can't detect any overt or subliminal evil, there's always faithless living being promoted. Along with all sorts of religious and ideas and philosophies contrary to the word of God. David said he would put no wicked thing before his eyes. Since you're in Psalm 119, look at verse 37. Turn away mine eyes from beholding vanity and quicken thou me in thy way. What if in the morning you were to get up and open it to Psalm 119 and say, I'm going to try the pastor's approach since I can't think of a place to read in the Bible. And you put your finger on verse 37. Turn away mine eyes from beholding vanity and quicken thou me in thy way. But you went to bed the night before having watched some stupid movie promoted by the devil and sold through Hollywood for the destruction of your soul. In Romans chapter 1, the apostle said, "...who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same but have pleasure in them that do them." Out of our five inputs, there are friends. Do you have pleasure in any one that does the things that are listed as offenses against God in Romans chapter 1? The fifth one, your entertainment. Do you have pleasure in those people that do things contrary to the word of God on two points? You fail, Romans one thirty two, if you take pleasure in friends or you take pleasure in entertainment that is contrary to the Word of God. Paul gave a good description of what you ought to have as your mental inputs in the way of entertainment and in the way of thinking in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8 when he said, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, These are all by God's definition of terms, not Hollywood's or the PTA. Whatsoever things are true, honest, just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. They ask me, why can't I make it? Why can't I defeat this sin in my life? I answer, I give to you five inputs that will make or break you as a successful Christian. To the degree you cheat on one or more of these inputs is the degree you will fail as a true Christian. If you're compromising on one or more of these inputs, you can drastically alter your life for God. If you've been compromising them toward the world and you were to change them toward Christ, it'll change your life. It doesn't matter what people around you think, that you're being goody-goody two-shoes or you're being too spiritually minded. This is not being too spiritually minded. When you or our church becomes too spiritually minded, we'll have some sermons on that subject by tempering it with a little carnality. We'll look for the verses. Five little inputs. Basic Christianity, but successful Christianity. May God bless the preaching of His Word.